Hello, audiobook fans. Welcome to another episode of Harper Audio Presents. I want you to picture your favorite author in the act of writing a book. I bet you see someone sitting in a chair, furiously typing away, probably in an office or a basement or some other confined space. You probably see them sitting alone. The act of writing can be solitary, but today on the podcast, we're featuring two authors who are anything but solitary because of the ways that they engage with and include their fan base. Later in the episode, I'll chat with Susan Mallory, one of Harlequin's all-time best-selling authors, about her new novel, The Summer of Sunshine and Marco. Naming characters after her fans is just one creative way that Susan keeps them involved. And we'll talk about one specific thing she did with Christmas ornaments a little bit later. Uh, you don't want to miss it. But first, we're bringing you an interview with Dottie Frank. This interview was recorded in Charleston, South Carolina, during the Dorothea Benton Frank Fan Fest, say that five times fast, which was four days of books, food, laughter, and low country fun. Most impressive to me is the fact that Dottie invited all of her diehard fans into her own house. Our own Beth Ives chatted with Dottie about her 20th novel, the recently released Queen Bee, what makes the low country special, haunted buildings, and so much more. Beth and Dottie, take it away. So Dottie. Yeah. We are officially done with the fan fest. Praise God. <laughs> How does that feel? I, I'm I'm happy it all went so well. Yes. You know, I think that each event, one was one was better than the other. I had some events I didn't have very big expectations of, and they came through. You know, like yesterday morning when I had everybody in the world coming to my house for lunch and I woke up and it was pouring. I mean, pouring rain outside. I said, oh no. We're not going to have this weather. Yes. And, you know, it's like somebody heard me because slowly, slowly by 11 o'clock, the sun was out and the yard was drying up. And I was like, okay, there is a God, you know, and I caught a break today. So, yeah. So, and last night was so beautiful on the beach. And today with Natalie here and, and Carrie from Callie's Biscuits, I thought they just brought down the house. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so listeners, for those of you who don't know, there we just finished the, Dottie Frank Fan Fest, which was a four-day event in Charleston, where I believe 150 people came. If easily. I know there were more people than I was expecting. Yes. <laughs> I know that at the last minute we were scrambling for goodie bags. <laughs> and every single person that came up to me was just having the time of their life. They were. In fact, every person that um, I signed a book for on the way out the door, they all said this was unbelievable, that they never expected to have this much fun. But, I, you know, I think a lot of that is due to Kathy Gordon, right? Oh, oh yes. Oh, my God. She is, she really is, we ought to be able to bottle and sell her, you know? Yes. That we wouldn't have to do this anymore. Yes. <laughs> We'd be a couple of rich women. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think she's going to Palm Springs after this for a well-deserved vacation. I hope she does. Yeah. I hope she does. I mean, her attention to detail is unbelievable. And the way she conceived it, too, you know, there's a vision on this event. Oh, yes. Where everything was sort of high-end and everything was, was you know, meant to build the sisterhood. And, you know, it was just, it was great. Okay. It was great, very thoughtful. So let's talk about the book a little bit. So Queen Bee, which yeah. is on sale May, May 28th. 28th. Yeah. Um, so just, can you tell us a little bit about it? And it sounds like it's a little bit of a departure from what, uh, from your other books. I like to think that no two books are alike, right. you know, because I write about different subjects every time. And this time it's about honeybees. And I decided to write about honeybees because I wanted to learn about honeybees because I heard it said somewhere that 
if we didn't have honeybees, the, the whole planet, hum, humanity would have four years to survive and then we'd all die because yes. that's their cross-pollination is, is responsible for so much of our food production, right. right? So I wanted to learn about it. So I read everything I could get my little hands on about honeybees. Yeah. And then there's also, you know, just to make it interesting, there's a, a Southern superstition that you have to talk to your bees. If you don't talk to your honeybees, they will swarm and leave you. So I started thinking about that. I thought, well, you know, what if we had a girl who had just, was just, she's kind of meek. Usually I write about strong women, right? But this is a woman who's meek and she's surrounded by women who you, you just like to line them up and slap them up one side and down the other. They're just so awful. And uh, Scooter, you drink my water, darling. <laughs> Set my water over there. Just let me push that over here. Anyway, thank you so much. So she's um, surrounded by women, and she's bothered by the things they say and do, and so she tells her bees. And then she sort of is interested in the widower next door, so she tells her bees. And then the widower goes out, and you know things happen, and they're not good. And I don't want to give it away because that wouldn't be a good thing for the reader. But um, the, let's just say the bees hear her. And they start to do things. Okay. And it's, um, yeah, so that's that's definitely a departure from my other. It's about your connection with nature. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, you know, it's amazing. And the second night here, there were people from the Bee Cause Project here. I love them. Yeah, which was really cool. They had, so we're in the Mills House Hotel, which is this old Charleston hotel. It's beautiful. Which, yeah. by the way, I've heard is haunted. It is. Okay, great. There's, there's, Almost no place in Charleston that's not haunted. Okay. I mean, this is the blood-soaked land of our ancestors, you remember. Yes. Okay, so, yeah. Okay, so anyway, we're in this really gorgeous <laughs> hotel, and they bring in an actual beehive. Right. So we're here drinking cocktails. Right, big and time. The, and these people from this nonprofit <laughs> who educate schools. Right. In fact, Sullivan's Island um, Elementary School was the first school of the Bee Cause Project to have a hive from them. Okay. Yeah, that's such a cool... And they're in like 300 schools now. They are. And educating kids about the importance of bees. Honeybees. Honeybees, Honey because they're all different kinds of bees, right? So everywhere where I go on this book tour, where they have a Bee Cause Project, part of what we earn on the book is going to go to the Bee Cause Project. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Cool. Trying to help. Do what you can, right? Um, and so I have a question for you. I was mm -hmm. just kind of wondering, you know, you do a lot of research for your books, mm -hmm. and in this one you did a deep dive into honeybees. Mm -hmm. Would you ever consider writing nonfiction? You know, being a Southerner, a good Catholic girl, I'm a natural-born liar. Okay. So <laughs> fiction comes naturally to me. Okay. Whenever I try to write nonfiction stuff, it's like I write, I write a piece for my local paper back in Montclair. Um, it's an opinion piece called Dot's Desk. And we have some guy in our neighborhood who's trying to build a mega mansion that's got like, I don't know, 20 bedrooms and a basketball court, a bowling alley and two swimming pools. Who knows? The thing is huge, huge. And the, the town's all up in arms about it, right? So I wrote a piece and, and to say you know, I'm a little bit bothered by us telling each other what kind of house we can live in. And the guy's asking for setbacks so that you won't see it from the street. So you're not going to see it. So think about the tax base in this town and how high our taxes are in New Jersey. And remember Amazon walked away from Queens where they would have put 35,000 jobs into Queens, New York, right? And so think about the, the taxes that New York State lost for that. And then there was another guy that worked for, I think it was... Uh, 
is it Alapalusa, Alapusa, Ala, something, big hedge fund in New Jersey. And when our taxes went from something like 5.6 to something like 8.9, boom, overnight, he picked up his business and moved it to Miami. And the state, the state lost 4% of their overall tax revenue. So I wrote a piece about that. I'm sure that the minute I get back to Montclair, there are going to be people at the airport to stone me to death for having an opinion about something that's a hot, a hot topic. But, you know, um, I, I think fiction just comes more naturally. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm able to, to say, I'm really bothered by this, at like the bee, honeybee situation, and to bring you around slowly from page 100 to 400 to fall in love with bees, to come to understand you know, why we need the honeybees and how important they are. And to educate you slowly without, without giving a lecture on bees, that, that's easier for me than it is to write that one, two-column opinion piece. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so I think during this festival, two people won the opportunity to be characters in your next book. Yes. Okay. I'm going to make them immortal. I'm going to make them tall, skinny, and good-looking. Okay. <laughs> I mean, but that... God, that's such a cool thing. It's cool, to, isn't it? To be in your favorite author's book. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, wow, is she really going to do that? I was I've like, done wow, it over she's and doing... over again, yeah. Yeah, you know, yesterday morning when we were at Croton's Jewelry Store, yes. I forget who it was, but she said, oh, my aunt is a character in one of Dottie's books. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a while. A long time because it's a great way to raise money. Yeah. You know, normally I'll get a phone call like from my old grammar school in Mount Pleasant. Marilyn Dodds, an old childhood friend of mine, runs an auction for them every year. And she'll say, oh, God, it's me again. You know, I never call you except when I want something. You must think I'm awful. I go, Marilyn, I love you to death because I do. I love her to death. Yeah. Um, and she'll say, can I, I say, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And so she'll they'll give that away as, a, as like an auction item or something. And um, with, along with a slug of books that I'll send them, signed books. So, you know, they'll raise, I don't know, five to $10,000 just on that. So if I do that for a battered women's shelter here, my old grammar school there, a library association here, I'll raise anywhere between thirty dollars and $50,000 a year for good causes. That's that I amazing. Care about. Yeah. yeah. It's easy to do it, you know? Yeah. Because love... the 20 books in, I'm out of names anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's amazing. That's, that's writing with purpose. That's yeah. really... Yeah, giving back. That's really cool. So this is your 20th book, I believe. My 20th book. Okay. And most of your books are centered around the low country. They are. So northerners like me, I got to be honest, I don't know what the low country is. What? I know. Okay. If you, if you get <laughs> out a map of, of the world and you're looking for the center of it, it's right here in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. It's the center of the known universe, as a matter of fact. Now, the low country is... Um, old rice growing territory. Okay. Right? So because it's at, right at sea level or below. And it begins in North Florida with the Ogeechee River that runs the whole way up through Georgetown, South Carolina. And that's where rice plantations were. Okay. So that's the low country because okay. it's low. Because it's low. Because <laughs> it's low. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so when you see somebody like, you know, do you immediately recognize somebody that's from the low country? Like, are, are there commonalities in personality or dialect? I think there's a smirk. There's a smirk. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, usually usually people are a little better suntanned. Okay. You know? And um, there's a politeness yeah. that, that comes with the territory, I think. Yeah. I've certainly, you know, New Yorkers are very direct. That's where I live. And I'll say. It's refreshing being down here. Isn't it really it? is. Yeah. yeah, it's great. I am so this is my first time in Charleston. Oh my gosh. And I've got two days of vacation. So I wanted to pick your brain about 
what are the absolute must-sees? Like, what are the things I have to do while I'm here? Oh, gosh. There's so many things to do. It depends on what you're interested in. But if you want to know about, um, let's say you want to know about the Charleston Renaissance, which happened in the 20s and the 30s, um, when DuBose Hayward, uh, along with, I think his name was John Bennett, started the South Carolina Poetry Society. Um, all kinds of things went on in Charleston during that period of time, none the least of which was Ira Gershwin, came in, well, he's a little bit later, but he and, and DeBose Haywood wrote the libretto for Porgy and Bess while staying in a little house on Folly Beach. Amazing. So if you want to go see that little house, mm-hmm. you go out to Folly Beach, you call Kathy Glick, okay. and she'll open the house for you, and for $10, she'll take you all around to tell you the story. Amazing. Or if you don't feel like going the whole way out to Folly Beach, but you should because along the road is uh, Bowen's Island Seafood, which is its own island, and it is an experience unto itself. It's if casual didn't begin to cover it, okay? So it's fabulous oysters. And when I, well, to give you an example, when I was 16 years old, I had a boyfriend in high school and we'd go there for a date and for $2, we got a plate of seafood and you had to make sure you got out of there before the tide came in or else you'd lose your car. So anyway, it's cleaned up a little bit since then, no, by a lot. And the food's still really great. So you could do that, go to Bowen's Island, then go out to see Kathy Glick and see the Porgy and Bess house, right? Or you can go to the Charleston Museum downtown and you can see the piano that uh, George Gershwin signed when he was writing the libretto to Porgy and Bess. Amazing. So, and you should also see a house museum. My personal recommendation would be the Edmonton Alston House on on South Battery, which is, I think it's $20 to go in. And they have a lot of artifacts there from the 18th century that really show what life was like. And they have a darn good docent that takes you around and explains it all to you. Um, The gardens are gorgeous. You know, a plant, the plantations, Magnolia Gardens um, is my favorite, I think. I used to go there with my grandmother when I was a little girl. And the Cypress Gardens has beautiful bridges that you walk over, and things are in bloom here all the time, at least until we had 100 degrees, and then everybody's kind of underneath the porch begging for a glass of ice water, right? Um, what else is he? Walk the beaches, go to the forts, go see Fort Moultrie and Fort Sumter, you know, where the Civil War began. So, some of the most important battles of the American Revolution were fought here, if you're interested in history. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to be, you know, if you want to see alligators, you go up Highway 17 to Awendaw, right? And you make a right-hand turn at Seaweed's Restaurant right there. And you go out to landing where you'll go on a ferry over to Bulls Island. And then you can go to Alligator Alley and you'll see more alligators per square inch than anywhere else. Or you can go to Graveyard Beach where all the cypress trees have died and been bleached white by the salt. It's a fabulous place for photography if you're interested in photography. And then there, there are the Birds of Prey Center if you're interested in Birds of Prey. Um, there's the Charleston Aquarium. There's the Charleston, uh, well, the Charleston Museum, but also the Gibbs Art Museum, which has quite a spectacular collection of uh, 18th and 19th century paintings and sculpture that really demonstrate life in Charleston at that period. That They also have lots of contemporary stuff by guys like Jonathan Green, who's one of my personal favorites. I uh, was a great um, African-American painter who paints uh, scenes from the Gullah culture, which is quite special. Wow. And then you can eat. Then you know, <laughs> Then you can go out to eat. You can go to John's Island and go to um, the Wild Olive and say hello to my son-in-law, Carmine, who's the sous chef out there, which he loves. We all love to go there. I think he was at the house yesterday. He was at, yeah, he cooked for us yesterday. Um, our, their sister restaurant, the the um, Obstinate Daughter, yeah. which is, you know, I told my daughter, well, finally, there's a restaurant named after you. Uh, so 
the OD on Sullivan's Island, which is great. Or Poe's Tavern or Dunleavy's. I mean, they're, Charleston's loaded with uh, James Beard nominees, uh, nominated chefs and winners, too. I think we have three or four winners, James Beard. You know, it, it's, shopping's great on King Street. You, you got to go to Ben Silver and buy a brackish feather tie for your husband, you know. Um, go to Krogan's. God knows I wouldn't come to this town without bending my knee at Krogan's. Yeah, Krogan's. So we, it was the first stop yesterday on, you know, in the day's schedule. Krogan's is this amazing jewelry store. Amazing. I, wow, like amazing. The most beautiful jewelry I've ever seen right? in my life. Yeah, yes. gorgeous stuff. It's a very, we say it's a well-curated collection. Yes. <laughs> So I think we're about out of time. We're supposedly, um, by the way, we're in the grand ballroom. Um, it is grand. <laughs> and yes, there are uh, there are ghosts in here. This place is everywhere. Everywhere ghosts everywhere. Um, but thank you so much, Dottie. I it's hope it's a huge pleasure. I hope that you have the rest of the day to put your feet up and drink wine. I think and I'm going to absolutely. I'm going to do, do the New York Times crossword puzzle, and that's well, that going to be great. it for me. But I want to thank all of y'all for coming down here and making this the fan fest that it was. I mean, we're all fans of each other, I think. So it was a good time and it was a lot of work by HarperCollins and I, I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Okay. Thank you again to Dottie Frank. Her novel Queen Bee is available now. Next up is my remote interview with Susan Mallory. Susan is a pro at making herself accessible to her fans which we get into in the interview. Uh, we also cover why she majored in accounting, uh, which of her pets are her favorite, how her real family responds to her writing, and loads more. So let's get to my interview with Susan Mallory. So your latest is The Summer of Sunshine and Margot, And the title characters aren't just sisters, but fraternal twins. And I'm curious what made you interested in writing about that extra dynamic, or if you if you know any fraternal twins in your regular everyday life. No, and I don't even know any twins, which is sad. <laughs> I feel my life would be richer if I um, if I had them. Um, I think the twin thing is cool, and if you start to think about like the gestation period, it's a little creepy, but still very interesting. Um, I had wanted to do sisters and um, this sometimes books just appear fully formed and sometimes they begin in a much more messy fashion. And this was a messy book. Um, so <laughs> I had the basic premise. Um, I had the idea of um, uh, the somehow beauty pageants were going to play a, a piece in their life because I, especially as a young girl, was obsessed with them. And um, sadly, there was no talent for reading. Otherwise, I feel I could have been, you know, relatively successful at very the very beginning pageant level. They would have tossed me out soon enough, but still. Um, <laughs> but I, I loved that. I had the idea for the, uh, for the Bianca character, which I know we're going to talk about later. And yeah. I had bits and pieces. And then one day... I got the opening. Um, uh, well, actually, not what you have, but what I sent out to my agent and then to my my publisher is mm -hmm. a pitch, and it had this whole setup of the town where they grew up and what happened, and it was like then just boom. And from that, 
I really played with how old are they? And finally, it's like, just make them twins. It'll be so much easier math-wise. So that's how it, <laughs> I want to tell you it was some grand plan and a spiritual connection. But no, it just became easier to make them fraternal twins. It just worked out very nicely. That's a really nice writer hack to keeping <laughs> them the same age. Yeah. That's, that's an amazing trick. You did bring up the character Bianca Ray. Um, I love Bianca. Yeah, so she is a movie star. She is. She's now later in her career. Yes. And I love just the way that she speaks, like the first time we hear her. And I imagine it was a blast to write dialogue for a character like that. I, I, and I Yes, yeah. and I loved Bianca. And she's kind of a cross between what I saw as Marilyn Monroe and Princess Diana had she stayed with us. Um, oh, okay. So the famous, the a little bit outrageous, the over the top, the bigger than life, the everywhere you go. And part of what I find interesting is for people who are that amazing, like that beautiful and that special, what must it be like to get old when you lose that? I don't care how beautiful you are in our culture. You know, you need to move to Japan early because they adore old people. We do not <laughs> in in. America and Western Europe, and you still, you're going to get old and you're going to become less relevant. And that's, that's one of the things I wanted an undercurrent with Bianca, but not the main story. The main story is outrageous and why. Mm -hmm. And um, it was interesting because I knew her secret from the beginning. Um, I knew the why, but nobody else knew why. And in fact, her son didn't even think there was a secret, which I love because no offense, but, you know, men are often emotionally um, plant-like. So he had no idea that there was, oh, my gosh, this thing. And it changed. I also love how one piece of information changes everything and not who the killer is. That's mm -hmm. not what I do. But I love the revelation of just one thing your entire life changes because the filter you've been using to view your world has now changed color. And it is it is one of it's a life-changing moment and yet on the surface so incredibly small. Mm -hmm. Uh you mentioned doing California Girls back to back. I want to point out how ridiculous your output is. I think did you do four books last year? I did do four books last year. Wow. So I grew yeah. up writing category. Um and that's how I got my start in the writing world. I wrote a few historicals, and if you can find them and read them, be gentle as you judge them. <laughs> I was very, very young. I was just out of college. And um, I started writing category romance, and I, I was actually in college when I started writing. And so I was used to studying, and I was used to writing papers and, you know, doing all the college thing. So when I started writing, I didn't know anything. It was very easy um, and my mother had said, this computer thing, I think it's going to be big. You need to learn to type. So I did. And um, when I started writing, I just wrote 10 pages a day because it was a nice round number. And that was the time I had. And I would schedule my writing between my studying. So I always had a block of time. And, and so I would try to hit my 10 pages. And it just became a thing. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to write that much. No one <laughs> told me for a really... I'm serious. I didn't yeah. know for three or four years. I was well-published before I found out all the writers I, I desperately admired wrote like one page a day. And I thought, well, what do they do with their day? <laughs> um, and I also took a lot of writing classes in 
I was in Los Angeles, and there's so much. The Screenwriters Guild has classes for non-members. The Writers Guild has classes for non-members. UCLA Extension, there's just tons of workshops with amazing teachers. And I took them all, and some guy um, said, you should increase your output by 10%. And I thought, oh, well, that's really smart. So I started doing that. So I went from 10 to 11 to 12. And at one point I got up to 25 pages a day, which I will tell you for me is a killer pace. (laughs) Um, So I backed down, but then I found out Linda Howard wrote two pages a day. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to write two pages a day because I would give anything to be Linda Howard. And um, plus the accent is so cool. (laughs) Anyway, if you haven't heard her talk, you should. And, uh, And then it was like it had been 10 minutes and I thought, well, now what? This is silliness. You're just accept you will never be Linda Howard and move on with your small life. So I did. And um, and so I when I wrote the category romance, I was doing five or six books a year. And um, one of the reasons is I'm a plotter. I, I plot my books out. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I get all that pre-work done, I just go. Every day is like a really good writing day. And um, it's... Uh, so I didn't know. And then I started writing the single titles, which ironically, I'm writing less books, but I'm writing more pages because the books are so much longer, mm-hmm. um, but so fun to write. So yeah, it just kind of became a thing. I don't really have a lot of hobbies. Um, I've tried. I don't relax well. <laughs> um, I do work a lot, but I love my work. And uh, we were recently on a, my husband and I were on a cruise in the Mediterranean. And uh, we were, I swear on my favorite cat's beating heart, we were sailing into Venice in the morning. Uh, It was about 1030 in the morning. I figured, you know, until it got interesting, I would do a little work. So I'm working and I'm like on the last scene of the book. And um, my husband's like, sweetie, we're sailing into Venice. I'm like, no, five more pages. (laughs) So I run out to the balcony to look and it's not that interesting. So I race back in and pound out these pages as fast as I can so that I can then run out the door and stand with him on the balcony and do it. Cause you know, you're supposed to support the marriage yeah. <laughs> and um, sail into Venice, which was incredible. I know they don't like that and they're going to stop letting, we were on a tiny ship, just very, very small. Mm-hmm. Um, but still it was, um, it was amazing. But yeah, I really wanted to get those pages done. So I can't help but I love I love writing. It's fun. I, Everybody should have this much fun at work. I feel like you're blessed with that like as a gift. Um, I think this is going to be the hardest question you've ever had to answer. You mentioned okay. that you are, uh, you were swearing on the heart of your favorite cat, which yes. one of your cats is your favorite. Well, it's no, it's not hard. It's Alex. Alex and I have a very close relationship. Here's the problem. Lucy loves her dad mm-hmm. and her dad loves the poodle. So it is sad. Alex and I are tight. No, it's mom. I mean, you know, cats are all superior and um, they don't know. If I've been gone more than three hours and I call his name, his he comes running his little knock-kneed run. He loves his mom. That's fascinating because um, I, so I have two cats, um, yeah. uh, Bodega and Deli, and I kind of switch between which one is my favorite like day to day. I'm not sure I could ever make – that's like my Sophie's Choice, I feel like, would be having oh, to – see, that's really hard. Yeah. No, normally I don't. I try not to, you know, but Lucy um, 
Lucy was, we got them both when they're about eight months old and they're half siblings and Lucy had been abused. Mm -hmm. And so she was difficult when we got, we knew she had been abused. We just don't know what happened. They said it was a toddler, but five years later, I can tell you it was not a toddler. And um, whoever hurt her was a woman. She does not like women. So it took me about three years till she would purr. Um, Oh, wow. That's it. Yeah. So, um, she, uh, if I approach her in the wrong way, she still runs from me. Um, and she, like if a workman comes in, she will go over, roll, show her belly, rub against him. So it's, it's, I've never had a pet that didn't prefer women to men, but definitely Lucy. So, um, it's, you know, I, I love her of course. Um, and I can make her purr now against her will. She gives me this look like, I hate you. I hate, okay, just a little bit more. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so but Alex just straight out loves his mom. So you know that's hard. I mean, he's fluffy, Mr. Fluffy Pants. He's oh. very fluffy in the pants. So we love him. <laughs> um, if I could switch to your audiobooks for a second, mm-hmm. um, Tanya Eby uh, narrates most of your books, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you've ever sat down and listened to one of your own books, and if so, does hearing someone else's performance of your work unlock anything about the characters for you or do you just like not hearing your own words uh, said out loud um i love tanya um i had a few different readers and when i i because initially they're just assigned mm-hmm. um you don't get to pick and then um she started reading my books and i got a lot of reader response on it and i loved her too so i started requesting her and uh luckily now i get to be asked so tanya is always my favorite um, she does a wonderful job. And when you're doing a series, you want the same reader, the same narrator through whether it's two books or five books or 10 books. You don't want to switch people. It's people who listen to books have, they're very auditory and um, it's important to them. So I, in fact, do listen to my books. Um, I don't like to read them. I'm not a good reader. I'm a skimmer. <laughs> um And I don't like a description, which is why you won't find much in my books. Um, In fact, that's my major, often my major note is, could you describe the house, anything, carpet, wall, something, give us something. Um, But I love listening to the books because I am very auditory and it helps me. It's although it's a horrible process because I sit there thinking, why did you do that? That's wrong. <laughs> that beat is too short. That beat is too long. Oh, that dialogue. Could it be more? Oh, yeah. So it is just I it is cringeworthy for however many hours it is. But I learn a lot. Several years ago, I discovered I used the word interesting far too often. So I have a <laughs> list of words that I run through at the end to check for. Um, currently it's wow. I found that out. So I'm always trying to do better. And so about a year and a half, two years after the book is out, I will gird my loins and listen to it. Um, I can't wait to use gird my loins enough that that makes its oh, way onto the list. Yeah. I Well, I don't use it a lot. It is, it's long. Yeah. <laughs> so family is always at the forefront of your books. That's always a huge part of the plot. Um, I'm curious how your real family has reacted to your work. Well, that is a funny question because I get a lot of how many sisters do you have? And the irony is I am, in fact, an only child and both my parents are gone. Um, So I write about family. I didn't know when I I had been writing about five years, one of the classes I took was um, everybody writes, every author has a theme that they write over and over again. 
And the best thing to do is embrace it because it is coming from your heart. And so to know what your theme is and then surround the thing, you know, accept it, live it, get a tattoo. So my theme, I always write about finding family in one way or another. Um, And, and about the same time I went to yet another workshop and it was uh, Joe Beverly who wrote historicals and she talked about the alpha male was really, this is about 15 years ago, maybe a little bit more. No, definitely more. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, we were all very young. And uh, she um, talked about the alpha male, which was such a huge thing, still is, and not my thing. I don't do the alpha male. Um, I write very female-centric books. Even when I was writing category romance, um, my I start with a heroine. Um, unless it's like an ongoing series and I've got a male character coming, but I usually start with a heroine. Um, she's my primary character. It is very different from the hero centric romance that many people read and many authors write. And what she talked about was if you, with the dark, dangerous hero, um, we're running out of ways to damage him. Yeah. But she thinks in some ways, it's more interesting if the hero has family. If you hate your mother and haven't spoken in 20 years and she calls you at an inconvenient time and needs to go to the doctor, you don't care. But if you love your mother and care about her and she calls at an inconvenient time, you have to go. So that is a different tension, but a tension nonetheless. And I, that those two events were very, they were within a year of each other and it really was life-changing in my writing when I thought I need to embrace this theme of finding family because it really is infinite. Um, and, and so it's a very nice broad theme for me, but it's also a universal theme. It's something people can relate to. Those of us who don't have a big family create family. You have a fantastic fan base and you are really good to your fans in return. Uh, I know you have the members-only portion of your website with the recipes and the podcasts and other exclusives. How did you cultivate that relationship with your fans? And does it shock you when you see other authors who kind of ignore that or keep their fan base at an arm's length? Um, well, I love my fans, and I, I think I have great... I think of them as readers, and I think of them as part of the family. And... Um, I think they're very discerning in their taste. Uh, so I, uh, I think everyone has to find their own way. And one of the things I liked about social media is it allows me to have a connection, but when it's convenient for me. Um, so if I'm having a busy writing day, I may not poke in as often as when the writing's not going well. Um, so I like that. I like the connection. I like that. I want to know what they think. I, I am not one of those authors who writes in a vacuum. I care what my readers think. And some of them have amazing ideas. I wrote a book, um, a a series called the bakery sisters Mm -hmm. and the middle book was called sweet talk. And there was a teenager named, um, Raul in the book. And, uh, he was about 18 years old, 17, 18. Um, and I, he was a great guy. I mean, I, it was a really good subplot. I really liked him. Um, and so the book came out and I had written, I was writing the next series and a reader sent me a note saying, is he going to be a hero in a future book? And the second she said it, it's like, 
oh my God, of course he needs to be a hero in a future book, duh. So I wrote her back and I said, alas, no, not the next series because I'm not that bright. But the series after he will be in there. So he is the hero in, um, it's book three of the Fool's Gold series, um, Finding Perfect. And um, it was great. I got to bring those characters back. He's had some trauma in his life. Um, He's a big hunky guy. (laughs) I would love to rewrite that ending. For those of you who are like, really? You couldn't give us an extra beat? I know, and I apologize. (laughs) I listened to it recently, and it was like, oh, my God, you need a beat at the end. Um, So, But that was really fun. Um, I like to engage my readers in things. I like to make it interesting for them. Um, They help me with a lot of stuff. I'll do name i'll have them name stuff Mm -hmm. um like in a town it's hard to name a town it's and it's not fun for me it's not the part i like i like the writing i like the characters i like the the squishy messy plotting part Mm -hmm. i really don't want to sit down and name three stores and a (coughs) restaurant and a park and a river that's just hell i was going to bring that up that i I saw that you crowdsourced that through your phase oh, yeah, recently to name the... They like yeah. it, and I'm grateful. And then I use, if I... So Janelle handles all this mm-hmm. because she is the queen. And um, so she keeps track, and the, the first person to say the suggestion will um, we use her last name in the book. So it's sort of my shout-out. <laughs> um, and it's great. I need last names. You know, well, I, you can always use Caberline. It's a weird one, so... Okay. It's yours. If you want it's to yours book, to you, use. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I will happily do that. But there's a lot of people that have to be named. And sometimes we have to go back and say, so she's the horrible bitchy ex-wife. Are you good with that? Because <laughs> you're not the sweet six-year-old, you know, mm-hmm. who gets an ice cream. And mo- sometimes they'll say no, and I won't put them there. I'll put them somewhere else. Um so that's really fun. And then um, sometimes I do things just to make my life interesting. So... I've done this before and I'm writing, I'm actually writing the next happily ink book. And um, so next year's and it's going to be set at Christmas. And so one of the things I do with this Christmas book and I want to hold it up like you can see it. Oh, there it is. I'll pretend I'll play along. Oh, it looks great. Um, yeah. We do a scavenger hunt. So readers send me random and I beg them for random. This year, the pickle ornament was very popular. I don't know why. <laughs> Um, but I want really, really, really random stuff. And then I have to put it in the book somehow. And then we will make a list of the items and then people can download, you know, print out the list as they read the book. It's a scavenger hunt. And I did need ornaments this time because ornaments are going to be significant. So those are just straightforward. Mm -hmm. I've got what, five, six ornaments but I have really interesting stuff, and some of it is incredibly specific, like a puka shell necklace and a 1965 Mustang convertible. <laughs> the only time those two things have been compared, like in one uh, sentence together, I feel well, like. they won't be in the same sentence. But um, <laughs> yeah. and some are easy, like a giraffe in a Santa suit, um, a rotary <laughs> dial phone. I've already put that in chapter three, scene two. Um, a ceramic cat wearing a bow tie and wire frame circular glasses. It's like, okay, I haven't worked that one out yet. So, oh, and I'm sorry, and then I'll be done because I know. No, Um, I could do a whole hour of this. Yeah. Roofing nails. (laughs) That one. I just, I am so impressed at 
the agency that you give your fans. And I, I really very much admire you for doing that. I think it's not easy, but it, it's, it's so beautiful to me. Well, thank you. It's really fun. I mean, for example, just doing this is the, this being the um, scavenger hunt. Mm -hmm. It's fun. It adds a dimension to the writing that I enjoy. I enjoy the challenge of it. So if I'm reading this right, in school you majored in accounting? Is that correct? I know. It's sad. (laughs) So do you use any of your accounting skills uh, in your writing process? No, not technically, no. <laughs> um, the accounting thing was an accident. Um, I mean, I did really well. I actually shockingly graduated near, near the top of my class. Um, I'm a really good student. I, I like school. So I, I have a very, very strong, powerful left brain. So I am by nature a plotter. So the organization and that sort of thing is very useful because I do plot. So I plan out my books. I work out all the details. Um, I recently had, uh, I started a book. So I, I write a scene from everybody who's a point of view character. Then I plot the book. That's like two weeks of pacing and cursing. Um, a lot of chips are devoured in that week and alcohol. And uh, and then I start writing. And I wrote one scene, and then I didn't work for a week. Now, I was busy, so it took me until the following Monday to be like, so I'm not working, um, something's wrong, and I had made a mistake on the hero, so I had to rip everything apart. But I was, because I plot, I was able to do that on page 36 and not page 336. So it was a very fast, it took me three days to figure out the problem, fix the problem, and then by Monday, um, I was back to work, and I'm fine. But if I didn't, pl- I don't know how people don't plot. I the days I don't know what's going to happen, I sit there. I organize my paper clips. I file my. Na- I don't know how they. I don't understand pantsers, but they don't understand me, so it's fine. Um, and I've done hysterical workshops with Susan Elizabeth Phillips, who on the spectrum, we are at the opposite ends <laughs> of the spectrum. And I will say to you, as I have said to her face and in workshops, there are no words to describe how wrong her process is. <laughs> it is the wrongest of the wrong. Um, but look what you get. You get an amazing Susan Elizabeth Phillips book out of it. So obviously it's working for her. So in that respect, the accounting the organization. I have a lot of business people in my books. It's super mm-hmm. easy for me. Um, and humorously, um, my publisher loves that I have a business degree because we can have conversations <laughs> where they can say things that make sense, where some, the I refer to, excuse me, I'm actually using air quotes. Can you feel Yeah, that? I could, I could um, feel the that. The real writers, <laughs> unlike me, the real writers are just like, in their head. It's art. It's, and I admire them. I mean, I, I, I think of them as mythical creatures. Um, I am much more, you know, down to earth and I get it. I understand what my promotion budget is and how we spend the dollars. I get all that. I can do all the math. It's not hard for me. So, um, it does lurk. You can never escape it. You know, it's like a tattoo. It's there forever. <laughs> um, but it's so gone. It's been a long time and I don't remember very much, but I do remember just enough to be dangerous. That's so. that's lovely. Um, and I got a, I have a master's in writing popular fiction because, you know, an accounting degree was not overly helpful when I was. I took one English class. I, uh, yeah, it was craziness. My last two years at Cal State Northridge, mm-hmm. um, 
go Matadors. <laughs> I never left Sierra South. I was in one building for two years. Oh my gosh, I can't and imagine that. And the last that. year I didn't leave the second floor. It was just like, okay, yeah. yeah. And it was, it's almost, accounting's almost like a trade degree. You just, it's very detailed. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. That is, uh, accounting kind of makes my head hurt just to think of it. So I'm again in awe of you. Um, no, thank you. No, don't be. It's, uh, yeah. although I still make, we have an accountant and I make her insane. <laughs> When I, I'd make her totally insane. Oh yeah, I'm sure she like, hates hates having to deal with you. Be like, oh, she actually she's knows like, what you she's know talking better. about. It's like, yeah. yes, I do. I did not enter that check. Ha. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you again so much. All right. Take care. Yep. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks again to Susan Mallory. The Summer of Sunshine and Margot goes on sale June 11th. To finish off today's episode. We're going to give you the first few minutes of the audiobooks we highlighted today. So first up, Dottie Frank's Queen Bee, narrated by Shannon McManus. Then stick around for Susan Mallory's The Summer of Sunshine and Margot, read by Tanya Eby. Enjoy. Chapter 1. Meet me, Holly McNee Jensen. Sullivan's Island, South Carolina, February 2017. I was standing on our back porch, hanging wet dish towels on a swing arm gizmo, having just finished cleaning up after breakfast. Mama was headed back to bed, where she lived 90% of the time, ever since Leslie got married and moved to Ohio with Weird Charlie. I stepped outside and scanned the yard. Mother Nature was clearly losing it, one marble at a time. It was a Friday morning in the middle of February, and 80-something degrees. 80-something degrees? When I was a child on this sleepy island, I would have been wearing an overcoat, a hat, and maybe a neck scarf and gloves. I'd be shivering and waiting for the ramshackle school bus to stop at the corner and take me and a hundred other kids to Catholic school, where I would be made to tremble over the painful retribution to come for sins I had yet to commit. Now, people were all over the island, a parade of surfboards and coolers disappearing over the dunes, and on the beach, people half-naked, slathered with suntan lotion, running around like idiots. Didn't anyone know it was supposed to be winter? And no, I wasn't cranky. There it was. Proof. Climate change. Flowers that weren't expected to bloom for another six weeks decorated our yard in huge clumps and stands of color. Daylilies, shasta daisies, and purple smoke reared their pretty heads toward the morning sun and opened wide. My honeybees, who were supposed to be huddled in winter mode, getting their well-deserved beauty rest, had been sending out scouts from the hive all week long to see what was going on. They had to be very confused. I know I was. Something was seriously wrong. But confused or not, my bees needed attention. I was going to check the hives for the early arrival of, what else? Varroa mites. I was super picky about hive health. These nasty mites were awful. All over the country, varroa mites, along with hive beetles, not to mention pesticides, were trying to put honeybees on the extinct list. If that happened, God forbid, the whole planet would be doomed to starvation. Maurice Matterlink said without honeybees, mankind only had four years and then, forget it, doomsday. I headed for the backyard shed where I kept my beekeeper suit. Normally, I wouldn't see mites until late summer, but everything seemed so off-kilter. 
I was just being extra vigilant. I'll be back in a bit, I called out to my mother. What? She screeched back. Put in your hearing aids, I thought. She probably didn't even know where they were. I said, I'm going to check the hives. Whatever, suit yourself. Don't be gone long, I'm getting hungry. Oh, eat a can of beans, I thought. Didn't I just feed her? She drove me crazy. My mother, Catherine McNeed Jensen, was one colossal pain in the derriere. She kept tabs on me like I was a child, which I was not, and treated me like her personal maid, which I was. If I didn't have a garden and hives to tend and a volunteer job at the library, I'd go right off the deep end. I'd been trying to get a teaching job at Sullivan's Island Elementary School for years, and the best I could ever seem to get was the occasional substitute job. Because the island was so popular, there was probably a longer waiting list for teaching positions there than there was anywhere else in the state. And I sold my honey at the island's farmer's market, and sometimes at the farmer's market in Mount Pleasant, because I harvested over 100 pounds, sometimes much more, every year. But $8 a bottle wasn't going to make me rich. Eventually, I'd get a break. I let the wooden screen door slam behind me with a loud thwack and took a long, slow, deep breath. Rise above. And how was I ever going to get out of her house and make a life for myself? I was going nowhere until she did. So for now, I was a bachelorette, keeping my considerable favors under wraps until the right man came along. The thought of me having considerable favors worth keeping under wraps made me smile. Well, to be completely honest, many right men had come along, but they kept going, straight to the welcoming arms of my sister Leslie. And anyway, now I had my neighbor Archie's little boys to keep me busy. I preferred children to adults any day of the week. I'll get to them in a moment. There's so much to tell you. Chapter 1 Social interactions fell into two categories, easy or awkward. Easy was knowing what to say and do, and how to act. Easy was witty small talk or an elegant compliment. Awkward social interactions, on the other hand, were things like sneezing in your host's face, or stepping on the cat, or spilling red wine on a white carpet, or any carpet for that matter. Margot Baxter prided herself on knowing how to make any situation fall into the easy category. Professionally, of course. In her professional life, she totally kicked butt. Personally, not so much. If she was being completely honest, she would have to admit that on most days, her personal life fell firmly in the awkward category, which was why she never mixed business and pleasure and rarely bothered with pleasure at all. If it wasn't going to go well, why waste the time? But work was different. Work was where the magic happened, and she was the one behind the curtain, moving all the levers. Not in a bad way, she added silently. It was just that she was about empowering her clients, helping them realize it was all about confidence, and sometimes finding confidence required a little help. She turned onto the street where her nav system directed her, then blinked twice as she stared at the huge double gates stretching across a freeway-wide driveway. She'd been told the private residence had originally been a monastery built in the 1800s, but she hadn't expected it to be so huge. 
she'd been thinking more extra big house with a guest cottage and maybe a small orchard. What she faced instead was a three-story Spanish-style former church-slash-monastery with two turrets, acres of gardens, and an actual parking lot for at least a dozen cars. Who are these people? she asked out loud, even though she already knew the answer. Before interviewing a potential client, she always did her research. Overdid it, some would say, a criticism she could live with. Margot liked being thorough, and on time, and tidy, and, according to some, annoying. Margot pressed the call button on the electronic pad mounted perpendicular to the gate and waited until a surprisingly clear voice said, May I help you? I'm Margot Baxter. I have an appointment with Mr. Alec McNichol. Yes, Miss Baxter, he's expecting you. The gates opened smoothly, and Margot drove through onto the compound. She parked in one of the marked spots, then took a moment to breathe and collect her thoughts. She could do this, she told herself. She was good at her job. She liked helping people. Everything was going to be fine. She was a professional. She was trained, and she was calm. Calm-ish, she added silently, then reached for the glasses she'd put on the seat next to her briefcase. Margot stepped out of her car and smoothed the front of her slightly too big jacket. The outfit, gray suit, sensible pumps, minimal makeup, was designed to make her appear professional and competent. The glasses, while unnecessary, did a lot to add gravitas to her appearance. She was 31, but in shorts and a concert t-shirt, she could pass for 19. Even more depressing, in said shorts and t-shirt, she looked ditzy and incompetent, and just a little bit dumb. And that didn't reassure anyone. She walked up the stone path to the enormous front door. Although she knew nothing about Spanish architecture, she wanted to trace the heavy carved wood doors where angels watched over Christ as he carried the cross toward a hill. Yup, the big-as-a-stadium building really had once been a monastery, and apparently the monks had been sincere in their worship. Before she could get her fill of the amazing craftsmanship, the doors opened, and a tall, broad-shouldered, dark-haired man nodded at her. Miss Baxter, I'm Alec McNichol. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. She stepped inside and they shook hands. She had a brief impression of two-story ceilings and intricate stained glass windows before Alec was leading her down a hallway into a large office lined with bookshelves and framed maps of lands long forgotten. She did her best not to gawk at her surroundings. While she was used to working with the rich and famous, this was different. The books made her want to inhale deeply to capture their musty smell, and the maps had her itching to trace a path along the Silk Road. She'd taken a step to do just that when her host cleared his throat. She glanced at him and smiled. Sorry, your office is incredible. The maps are hand-drawn? He looked slightly startled, his eyebrows coming together in an attractive frown. They are? She looked at them one last time. If she got the job, she would have to ask permission to study the framed drawings. She reluctantly pulled her attention away from the distractions around her and took a seat across from him at the wide desk. When he was settled, he said, As I explained on the phone, you're here to help my mother. Yes, mister. Please call me Alec. She nodded. I'm Margot. And yes, I understand she will be my client. Excellent. She and I decided it would be easier if I conducted the preliminary interview to see if you and she are suited. Of course. Margot relaxed. Hiring someone like her was often stressful. 
Her services were only required when something had gone very wrong in a person's life, or if the potential client was anticipating something going wrong, or was overwhelmed. Very few people looked around at their happiest moment and thought, hey, I should find someone to teach me social etiquette and how not to be odd slash uncomfortable slash weird or just plain nervous. There was always a trigger that made a client realize he or she needed Margot's services, and it rarely grew out of an uplifting event. Harper Audio Presents is a presentation of HarperCollins Publishers. Our staff includes Beth Ives, Fametta Sawyer, Nathan Rossborough, and me, Andrew Caberline. Follow us on Instagram at Harper Audio and reach out to us on Twitter at Harper Audio Presents.